0: Welcome to the Life Christian Church podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Uh, Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and uh, I'm going to do a teaching over the next uh, number of minutes. The second installment in our new series, Cultivate Paradise, as a part of our Spiritual growth theme of of being blessed during the first trimester of this year, and um, today we also offer the teaching. Very aware that uh, this past Wednesday at our Ash Wednesday services, we launched the Lenten season, where we really think about preparing our hearts, focusing on Jesus, and being ready for the wonder of Good Friday and Easter. So. Let's talk for a minute about the work of Stanford University psychologist Carol Dweck. In her book, Mindset, The Psychology of Success, she talks about the potential diminishing fixed mindset as opposed to a potential unleashing and scientifically proven growth mindset. She writes... Believing that your qualities are carved in stone is the fixed mindset, that you only have a certain amount of intelligence, a certain personality, a certain moral character, and that's just the way it is. That's a fixed mindset. As opposed to a growth mindset, which is based on the belief that your basic qualities are things you can cultivate. Although people may differ in every which way, Dweck writes... In their initial talents and aptitudes, interests, or temperaments, everyone can change and grow through application and experience. The belief that cherished qualities can be developed creates a passion for learning. The passion for stretching yourself and sticking to it when it's not going well even is the hallmark of the growth mindset. This is the mindset that allows people to thrive. I think it's clear and Dweck and others have proven this as being real, I think it's clear that every human being should have a growth mindset, a perspective that says that the way we are, if the way we are isn't optimal, and we all have less than optimal parts of who we are, is not the way we have to be. That we can change and grow if We are willing to cultivate the positive qualities in our lives. We can continue to improve ourselves in many, many ways. And so every human being should have, in my view, a growth mindset. However, let's take this to an entire other level uh, completely. Part of what I love about the teachings of Jesus, which of course form the basis of Christianity, is that those who believe in Jesus are actually born-again, and enter a new dimension of life called the kingdom of God and are given the opportunity to live a new life. They, we, continue to be the same person, yet at the same time experience radical life transformation. In the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Romans in this instance, we are told that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Paul's writing to the Ephesians he said you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self put off your old self to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on your new self created hear this language guys created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness Paul also said to the Ephesians that we can grow In the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This speaks of unlimitless potential. We can grow until we actually attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The Apostle Peter wrote in his letter to the church that by his divine power, God has given us. Everything we need for a godly life. He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share His divine nature. But to grow like this, oh, well, let me go on. No, that's, I wanted to end that there. But to grow like this, we must cultivate the positive qualities that are in our new born-again divine nature. We now have a new nature in our spiritual DNA, but in order for us to exploit the possibilities inherent in that, we must cultivate these positive, what uh, 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 one passage calls godlike qualities, things that reflect who God is and his character. The Apostle Peter went on to say, after saying that we have everything we need to live this kind of life and that we have the divine nature, the Apostle Peter went on to say, in view of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. So how do we exploit the potentialities of who we now are in Christ, the divine nature, the qualities, the godlike qualities that are now in our spiritual DNA? We have to make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement, for instance, he goes on to say this, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can cultivate this good stuff in our lives until it becomes the most dominant reality in our personhood. We are not left, however, to cultivate this on our own. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus, to exploit the possibilities that are now ours. If we will let him, if we will give him something to work with, I'd almost say it this way, if you give him anything to work with, he will help cultivate These most positive traits of our new life. Paul said to the Galatians, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So every human being has the capacity to grow. But those of us who've believed in Jesus have supernatural capacity to grow because we've received his divine nature. We have these godlike qualities now implanted in our spiritual DNA. We've entered this new reality called the kingdom of God. And so we can now, by the help of the Holy Spirit, cultivate these things in our lives until we grow into the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus Christ. So, Last week, we began this new teaching series called Cultivate Paradise. We're teaching about how each of us can grow into the person God says we are. We talked about how paradise in Scripture, just to catch you up on last week, we talked a lot about this last week. I've just referenced it in an introductory way today. We talked about how paradise in Scripture refers to the idea of life as it is meant to be, a full, flourishing blessed life in every imaginable way. We discussed how that when we believe in Jesus and are born again, we connect with this spiritual dimension that Jesus called the kingdom of God. We spiritually eat the tree of life. We eat from the tree of life, which is literally in paradise. I like to think of it like this. When we believe in Jesus, we enter paradise, and paradise enters us. The Apostle Paul, referring to our new spiritual reality through Jesus Christ, said that when we believe, we become seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This is our spiritual position. We enter paradise, paradise enters us. We connect to life as it is meant to be now and forever. This is, after all, the kind of life Jesus promised us in John chapter 10, verse 10, which we refer to every Sunday in our benediction, where Jesus said, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life, real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. But for this new reality to be everything it is meant to be, we must cultivate it. Just as we taught last week that just as Adam had to cultivate the Garden of Eden, paradise in the beginning, in order for it to reach its full potential, so we must cultivate this new reality in our lives in order for our lives to be everything they were meant to be. Or we could just say it like this, we must grow. We must make every effort to grow and cultivate all the potentialities of this new reality we find ourselves in as a consequence of being born again. Spiritual growth is about closing the gap between the old us and our old ways of life and the person God says we now are and are becoming. Spiritual growth is about becoming in the day-to-day actualities of our earthly lives who God says we are now in spirit reality. God says through Scripture that we are a new creation, that the old us who missed the mark is dead, and the new us is created anew in Christ Jesus with the potential to live more and better life now and forever. We have to tap into that in the practicalities of our lives. Another way to talk about spiritual growth, again, as we taught last week, is to say that we become less like the fallen Adam who lost paradise in the beginning and more like the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who restored paradise through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Put more simply, spiritual growth for a believer and follower of Jesus is to grow to become more like Jesus where our lives are reflecting this new reality of Christ in us and our being in Christ in this new spiritual dimension called the kingdom of God. When we were born, we were born with Adam's sin in our spiritual DNA. It's called the spiritual, pardon me, the sinful nature. When we believed in Jesus, however, we were born again and we were born again with his righteousness and other godlike qualities in our new nature. We have, Peter said, now we've tapped into the divine nature. To grow spiritually, we must close the gap between the old us that was like Adam to live more like Jesus Christ. And to live like Jesus is an awesome thought. Jesus is the most fully actualized human being who ever lived and we can grow to become more and more like him it's amazing people think about you know growing to be like Jesus they they think maybe that just means growing to be a nicer person and it certainly does mean that but Jesus wasn't just nice he was powerful <laughs> he you know transformed the world around him the world itself when he grow to be like Jesus it's tapping in to every positive human potential one can imagine. Every positive part of human potential one can imagine. We can grow to be more like him. And not only that, it's not a self-help project. He helps us grow to be more like him if we'll give him anything to work with. There's a passage, uh, I've been going kind of quick because those are kind of my introductory comments and I want to dig a little deeper over the next uh, few minutes, but there's this passage in um, James, it's not really about spiritual growth, it's about something else, but I, I like to kind of apply a, a, a learning from this passage to the subject I'm talking about here. It's where James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then it says, Elijah, referring to the Old Testament prophet, was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. So, when I read a passage like this, and I and I and I read the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, then I ask the question: Am I a righteous person? And I, 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 I I'm reminded that. I am counted righteous because God said through my faith in Jesus that I become, and all of us become, the righteousness of God in Christ. So the answer to that, at least in my spiritual position, not always in my condition, which is what spiritual growth is about, is taking our position and turning it into our daily condition, at least in my spiritual position, I am counted to be righteous. I should see myself, according to the teachings of the New Testament, as God sees me, he sees me as righteous. Now, this is the new me. Now, the, 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 the old me still shows up too often, but the new me, as I grow, is gonna dominate more, 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 more the old me until I become more like the person God says I am. But I should fundamentally see myself as declared righteous. And I like this thing about Elijah that says, it seems like a non sequitur. The prayer of a righteous man avails month. Elijah was a human being. He was just a human being. But when he prayed, and I won't go into the story. It's too, too, comp- too, too much to get into right now. When he prayed, he saw supernatural results. And I love this idea that even though we're just human beings, because we're declared righteous, we should expect to see supernatural progress in our lives. We should expect the Holy Spirit can cultivate in you and me just human beings. Something that goes beyond anything that we could cultivate in ourselves because we are looked at by God as his sons and daughters, people righteous in his sight, who he is at work in making everything he wants us to be, even in our human frailty God can work in and through us to achieve supernatural results. Even in all of your humanity, God is at work to help you grow. I want you to have a mindset that says, I can grow, I will grow because God will help me grow. I confess over you, I confess over each of us that in days and months and years to come, you will look at the person that you have become and you'll. Be- amazed by the growth and positive change you will have experienced in your life. And you will know that the only reason that you've become a better person, who's more like Jesus, who's living more and better life, is because the Holy Spirit has produced supernatural results in you, even though you're just a human being. Your divine nature has produced God-like stuff in your life. We should live with that kind of expectation. We're just human. See, I think too many Christians just emphasize that I'm only human. Well, you're only human, but that's no excuse for not growing up into the full measure of Christ. Because you're only human, but God looks at you and says you're righteous. And the, 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 the effort of a righteous person produces supernatural results. Okay, having said that then, let me offer three confessions to cultivate spiritual growth. Three confessions to cultivate spiritual growth. So let's start with the I'm human part, okay? First of all, confess your humanity. Let's start there because we need to. Even though it's true that we now have a new nature, we know that the old sinful nature is still hanging around, battling against the new person that we are, right? So so there, there is a reality to our, to our being human that we just need to acknowledge and kind of get out in front of, if you please. During my three-month sabbatical last year, I went on a quest, a quest I've been on my entire adult life, but I really got serious about uh, making sure, sure that I was spending time uh, intentionally knowing God more and knowing myself more in light of who he is. Reminded of the words of John Calvin, who said that wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And I'm reminded of the prayer that St. Augustine prayed in, in his confessions, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. One of the tools I used, recommended to me actually by several pastor friends who I respect, one of the tools I used to to at least dig into knowing myself better was a tool called the Enneagram. And I particularly uh, used uh, one resource. It's the only thing, frankly, I've ever really read at any length about the Enneagram, which is quite popular right now. But I I worked through a book. And I'm continuing to refer to a book called The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective, by Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, the Franciscan priest who I've quoted a number of times from uh, this stage, and the academic Andreas Ebert. Rohr and Ebert have done extensive work on the Enneagram and maintain that its roots are found as far back as the early monasticism of the Desert Fathers and perhaps even back to pre-Christian times. If you Google the Enneagram, you'll find that there are some Christians who, who question using it as a tool because they don't think that it began in orthodox Christian thought. Rohr and Ebert believe that it did, but frankly, whether it did or not, it's a tool. And they've taken this tool and they've written about it from a Christian perspective. It's not Scripture. It's just a tool. And it's a tool that I use that's really powerfully impacted my life. My desire here is not to promote the Enneagram by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, it's to talk about the pro- a process that I've been on is very personal to me that hopefully will demonstrate how we need to confess that We're just human beings on one hand in our relationship with God. The Enneagram identifies nine basic personality types, or maybe said better, areas of potential and gifting, or need, the the need we have to to be and conduct ourselves in certain ways in this world. Each type, each one of these nine types, though laden with positive possibility, has a corresponding temptation and a default sin. Now, I'm going to skim the surface of this. In fact, I'm gonna, it's so just so much of it. I'm not even going to skim it. I'm going to sk- it's just barely touch on it. Okay, but it's still going to take me a moment to to talk about this process that's impacted me, and to hopefully take, extract from it a principle that I hope will impact you. Um, so part of the learning is that it's in the area of our greatest gifting that we have the root of our greatest sin, the kind of the fundamental sin from which many of our other destructive behaviors flow. So 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 it's like on one hand you're trying to discover who God made you to be and and the power of the gifts or primary gift God's given you and we all have some mixture in all of this there's not one type there's one type that's dominant and other types that 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 that, that are connected to it but we're trying to figure out what is the the most powerful part of who God made me to be, and to know that in that there's unique temptation and there's unique sin, root sin, that is typically powerful in proportion to the power of your gift. It's like the more powerful you are in this area of your life, the more likely you are to think and act in self and other harmful ways in your life. So The goal is to sanctify our potential and giftings. The goal is for God to be able to use the most powerful part of who we are, but to have redeemed us in our areas of weakness or what we'll call the shadow side of the power of the gift. And so so this to happen, we have to be honest about what we discover about ourselves in this, both in terms of potential and also in terms of potential harm. Rohr, just to give you an idea of how uh, he responded to this, Rohr said that, that learning about himself through this Tool was one of the three great overwhelming spiritual experiences of my life. And I can say that, that it's become a, a very powerful spiritual experience for me. He said, I could literally feel how, how something like scales fell from my eyes, and it became clear to me in a flash what I had previously been up to. I had always done the right thing, his type, is called type one, which is a need for perfection. And so Rohr says, I had always done the right thing, but for false motives. If you don't sense the whole thing as somehow humiliating, you haven't found your number. The Enneagram uncovers the games we find ourselves tangled in. So the power of who he is is that he has this need to cr- make everything perfect. But but at there's a temptation there, which is, to become angry because nothing is ever perfect. Anyway, he discovered that his motivations were wrong and flawed. He wrote every gift that we get excessively fixated on, paradoxically, becomes our sin. Our gift and our sin are two sides of the same coin. To meet your gift, you must, so to speak, chew, eat, and digest your sin. Eat it, taste it, feel it, let yourself be humiliated by it. If we own and take responsibility for our darkness, if we feel how it has wounded ourselves and others, how it has allowed us not to love and not be loved, if we do that, I promise that we will become alert to the other side, to our greatest gift. Or rather, the actual depth of our gift, that is why we must accept our gift in order to see our sin, and we must accept our sin in order to recognize how gifted we are. So, I love this idea that in our attempt to practice self discovery, that part of what we discover is we discover our. Our greatest potential, we discover the temptation that comes with it, and we discover our root sin. And I want to give you some examples. Again, I'm, I'm actually working my way to a point that I think will impact all of us. Is everybody still awake? Maybe not every. Would nudge your neighbor and say, Wake up. Because I, I think if the first crowd was any evidence that this would be meaningful to you, but it's going to take a couple minutes. So, for instance, I, there are nine types. And I'm going I'm to, again, skim the first two types to give you a taste of what this is like, just because it's the first two types, and then uh, just briefly mention the next uh, seven. So, type one is the need to be perfect. And let me read a little bit of what Rohr and uh, Ebert write. Ones are idealists. This is type one. Ones are idealists, motivated and driven on by longing for a true, just, and moral world. They are honest and fair and can spur others to work and mature and grow. They are often gifted teachers who strive to go forward, setting a good example. They have a hard time accepting imperfections, other people's and above all, their own. Inside ones, court is continually in session. They are their own prosecutor, defender, and judge. The conflicting voices keep nagging them. They bicker, interrupt, contradict, and correct one another. Anybody who isn't a one can hardly imagine how exhausting it is to go through this endless inner trial. Why am I talking about one? Because it's the first type. Okay? The search for perfection rules the lives of ones and is their specific temptation. The search for perfection is their temptation. Ones are always frustrated because life and people are not what they should be. Above all, ones are disappointed by their own imperfection. Anger is the root sin of ones. Ones are angry because the world is so imperfect. They're made still more aggressive by what they find in themselves. Along with the serenity of the redeemed one, ones also have other gifts once they have reached a certain degree of inner maturity. They are rational, just, and balanced. So there's this need for everything to be made perfect, to be made right. But there's this temptation to never be satisfied with anything. And then there is this sin. To be angry actually is not a sin. But if you're angry very much, you're going to sin in your anger. There's this root sin, anger, that's constantly angry at oneself and everybody around them because nothing is ever perfect. Unless one is redeemed and all of a sudden you're looking for Uh, a perfection, perhaps, to make things right, but in a way that's experienced from a peaceful, serene, I-don't-have-to-control-everything place in your life. All right, here's type two, the need to be needed. Again, just to demonstrate this. Twos employ their gifts for the needs of others and care for their health, nourishment, education, and welfare. They impart a measure of acceptance and appreciation that can help others believe in their own value. Twos can share generously and give their last shirt for others. The two's love of neighbor and presence, however, also has dark sides that may not be recognized at first glance. You read about a two, you're saying... Wow, that's an amazing person. In fact, an example here of a redeemed two is Mother Teresa. You know, I'm I'm going to serve others. Uh, But twos desperately want to be liked and have an exaggerated need for validation. This provides a fertile soil for the sort of false pride that is the root sin of twos. Twos have a claim to being dear and helpful, and as a rule, they are convinced that they are just that. When you are with an immature two for some time, you sense that they emit a very definite, subtle energy. The actual magic formula is need me. Twos need to be used. All you have to say to a two is, I need you, and all resistance fades. Later they go home and kick themselves for letting themselves be talked into it. Why did I let myself be exploited again? They ask, Our social network would collapse without all the twos who sacrifice themselves for the welfare of others, but they have to resist the inclination to style themselves grandly as saints and martyrs. The great temptation of twos is continually to help others, and in this way, to evade themselves." The root sin of twos is their pride. Pride is different from conceit or narcissism. The self-perception of unredeemed twos can take on a downright messianic trait. I'm more loving and sensitive than all of you. My love will save the world. Pride makes it hard for the twos to find an unbarred access to themselves and to God. Knowledge of sin would mean becoming aware of one's own pride. Ones hide their anger. Type one, hide their anger. Twos hide the fact that they are so needy. Now... Oh, one more thing. A redeemed two is very capable of love. Anyone who has the good fortune to be loved by a mature, integrated two has a tremendous beloved, a wonderful lover, and an enviable friend. And again, a positive example of a redeemed two is Mother Teresa. Now, here's the deal. As I read type one and type two, some of you saw yourself in one or the other. Typically what happens, you saw your spouse in one or the other, and there's nudging going on, all right? Here's the point. We're all a type, we all have an area of powerful gifting and need. And we all have temptations associated with that to act in self-destructive ways and we all have a root sin somewhere in there that's the shadow side that if it's not properly dealt with is gonna mess us up and keep us from all the potential of the good gifting and godlike qualities God's given us to do good in this world. You have a shadow side, not just the one or two you punched a second ago. So here, here are the other nine. I, I'm not going to get into these. it take weeks. Maybe someday we should actually do a series on this. Type three, the need to succeed, temptation, efficiency at all costs, root sin, untruth or deceit. If they're not succeeding, they have a difficult time being honest about who they are and their lack of success. Type four, the need to be special, temptation, an ancient striving for authenticity, root sin, envy. Type five, the need to perceive. I need to know. I need to understand. I need to be, you know, kind of prophetic in my life. The temptation, hoarding knowledge, the root sin, greed. Uh, type six, the need for security. Temptation, exaggerated striving for security. Root sin, fear. Type seven, the need to avoid pain at all costs. Temptation, to be a Pollyanna. Idealism, root sin, intemperance. You're doing more than you should to try to cover your your need to avoid pain. Type eight, the need to be against temptation, judgment, root sin, shamelessness, harsh judgment of other people that is destructive to them and ultimately to oneself. Type nine, The need to avoid temptation, belittling themselves, root sin laziness. I don't expect, you know, any of us, I don't understand a whole lot of this, trust me, even though I've been working on this for the last almost year now. Except here's what I've come to understand as I dug into who I am in this whole thing, which I won't make a public announcement about at this time. One thing that's important is, and I'm the kind of inclined to do that, I initially thought I would do that. Here's the type I am, and here's the temptation I face, and here's the sin I've learned that sometimes things like this, discretion uh, is, 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 the, is the better part of valor. And you only want to talk about the reality of who you are with people who know you, who see your shadow side, who love you anyway, who believe in you, who are invested in your growth, and are going to be there when you fall in your areas of, of, of temptation and root sin, okay? So you, you, you need to find some people like that in your life but uh, probably not make a public announcement. So, so as I started discovering my own type and seeing the way that the positive parts of my gift have been used by God over the years, I then began to feel desperately almost humiliated when I saw how obvious my root sin was. It's like I know everybody around me, they may not have been able to articulate it, but they see this about myself, but I've never really seen it like this to such an extent where I'm able to name that, that. That's the shadow side that if that's not dealt with, that will keep me from living out the full potential of who God made me to be. How do you take something that's in the shadow and cause it not to be in the shadow anymore? You shine light on it, right? You're honest about it. You identify it. You call it by name. You say, here's the thing that's messing me up and keeping me from becoming everything God made for me to be. You confess it. You turn from it. You start to take it head on. You start to notice it when it shows up. You're dissatisfied with that part of yourself and you say, this is a weakness, I'm not rationalizing it, I'm not minimizing it, I'm not saying it's okay, I'm saying that this for me, when it's dealt with improperly, is a sin, and sin causes me to miss the mark and to stay away from the beauty of everything good God has in my life. You have a shadow side. I'm not the only one in the room with a shadow side. You have a shadow side that the sooner you're aware of it and the sooner you acknowledge it and the sooner that you say, here it is, God, here it is, and maybe to a few trusted people around you, here it is, I'm sorry for how this manifests in negative ways. I turn from this. I'm asking you to help me. The sooner you do that, the sooner that you take that next step in your spiritual growth that allows the divine nature to become the dominant part of who you are. I love the way John said this. He said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Shine the light on it. Confess your humanity. This is the reality of what I struggle with. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, not me, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I believe that God is saying to us, bring that shadow thing to me. Let me help you with it. Let's work on this together. Let's deal with the shadow side and cultivate paradise in your life. Listen, guys, the important part of spiritual growth is being willing to acknowledge our weaknesses. Now, I don't think we're supposed to live in that. I don't think that's supposed to be our focus. I'll get to that in a minute. But we have to acknowledge our weaknesses in order for the strength of God, the grace of God to show up. The Apostle Paul said that God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Get it out of the shadows. Acknowledge it as weakness. Let God's grace show up. Let him redeem you from that. And I am, you know, a work in progress, but finding tremendous liberation and being able to say, this is the thing that really is the shadow side of the gifting God has given me. Just real quickly, uh, you guys know the story of how Beethoven, uh, when he was even in his 20s, was already... uh, one of the most famous composers in the world and and maybe the greatest pianist in the world. But he began to lose his hearing. By the time he was into his early 30s, he was on his way to being completely deaf. And at first... He raged against this weakness, and this is part of what Beethoven is famous about, is how angry he was at this weakness. For him, not a moral flaw, uh, but, but uh, to demonstrate the point, it was, it, it, the weakness of not being able to hear, and he's a composer and a piano player, and he was so angry that he'd play pianos, and actually on a number of occasions, according to what I've read, it would actually break the piano. He'd play it so hard and so angry as he raged against his weakness, And then at some point, acceptance came. And he started to understand that he couldn't hear. And he decided just to, you know... Know that this was true about himself and to find ways to, to 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 redeem this weakness into the greater whole of who he was and what he was called to be and his giftings. And he started finding ways to hear without hearing. He just devised ways to be able to hear, not literally hear, but to get sound from the vibrations of, 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 of a musical instrument. And um, I don't even understand exactly how he did all that, but he did. And then he started writing songs out of his imagination. He could no longer hear, so he started writing songs out of his imagination. In the final decade of his life, completely deaf, he wrote some of his greatest compositions, including the Ninth Symphony, which some would say is one of the greatest uh, pieces of music ever written. He actually conducted the ninth, century, the ninth Symphony, when it was uh, uh, debuted in Vienna, even though he was deaf, he stood there and conducted because he wanted to conduct it, even though he couldn't hear. Someone stood behind him who could hear and actually conducted. But when he was finished, the crowd went crazy, but he couldn't hear it because his back was turned to him. Somebody turned him around, and people started throwing their hats and their scarves in the air so that he, they could see how thrilled they were with what he had written, even though he was deaf. And, 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 and the idea is, that he wrote his greatest music when he couldn't hear because he wrote out of his imagination, meaning that, that that he accepted his weakness and used his weakness to do something even more beautiful than anything he had done before. Can I encourage you, as you become honest about your weaknesses, don't rage against them. See, part of what will happen when we get honest about ourselves is that we can get caught up in self-loathing. Self-loathing is not of faith. Self-loathing is not helpful. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in self-loathing to where you are raging against your weakness. When I see things in myself that I know are part of that shadow side, it's easy for me to, to rage against it instead of take it and confess it and offer it to God and say, God, Take this weakness and bring your grace to it. Take this weakness and use it to teach me. Take this weakness and forgive me and help me to turn. Take this weakness and help me to find a way to become redeemed so that I'm used in all the giftings you've given me in the most powerful way possible. Here's a second confession This is where we spent most of our time last week, but but this is really important. You can't stay in just the confession that you're human. You have to do all of it in this larger light. Confess who you are in Christ. Confess who you are in Christ. We're told in uh, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. That The first two foundational teachings of Christianity are repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. See repentance means to turn I, I, I think most people know that it was a in the first century is a military term it, it meant to 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 do an about face you 're facing that way you turn the opposite direction. It also meant to change one 's mind when we when we see our shadow side when we identify our sin, when we're honest about it, we have to turn from it. We can't just confess. We have to turn. And But when we turn, we turn to faith in God. It's repentance from dead works or acts that lead to death and faith in God. We turn from sin, but we turn to God and we declare our faith in Him. We We believe that he will not only forgive us, but that he'll transform us, that he'll help us change, that he'll help us grow. Part about what we believe about God is that we are who he says we are. For instance, we're told that when we believe in Jesus, we're counted as righteous by God, that we're everything we're required to be in relationship with him, that when God looks at us, he doesn't focus on our shadow side but rather on the fact that through faith we've been made right with him. And it's only when we believe that that we have the kind of relationship with him that he actually can deal with the weaknesses in our lives. So we don't just turn from our fallen humanity, we turn to God who declares us righteous and we ask him to help us close the gap between our fallenness and who he says we are through Christ. Again, I'll I'll repeat this, faith, not self-loathing. Faith is ultimately what will bring change if your faith is in Jesus, who's at work in your life. When you sin, you say, that's something I did, but that's not who I am. And don't let anybody convince you that that's who you are. That's not who you are. The Apostle Paul said, Romans 7, when I do the thing I shouldn't do, it's not me doing it, but it's sin in me. You may have a splinter in your thumb, but you're not the splinter. You may have cancer in your body, but you're not cancer. You excise that thing. That's not who you are. So you can live as a full, healthy, flourishing human being. And so when when you sin, you don't all of a sudden start uh, seeing yourself as this horrible person that you should always be angry at you say okay i did that that was a sin i'm wrong i'm i confess i turn you don't minimize it you don't rationalize it here it is here it is god P- apply your grace to this but 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 then you start focusing on who you are in christ who he says you are because as um As Neil Anderson says in his wonderful book, Victory Over the Darkness, understanding your identity in Christ is absolutely essential to your success at living the Christian life. No person can consistently behave in a way that's inconsistent with the way he perceives himself. Scripture says the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. You have got to get up every day and say, I believe in you, God. I believe in what you did for me through your son, Jesus. I receive it in my life. I accept the fact that you now declare me, your son or your daughter, loved by you, that you love me unconditionally, that you count me as righteous, and that you're at work in my life helping me actually live up to the person you say I am. But it's faith. That's essential to that happening. And the third confession is to confess your faith and do the work. To cultivate spiritual growth, we must couple faith and action. James said, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I would also say that action, if it is not accompanied by faith, is dead. We we go to work on our lives, but this Christianity is not self-help. Christianity is Jesus' help. Christianity is grace. Christianity is about God getting involved in our lives to do things in our lives from which we cannot help ourselves. This is the power of the gospel. You can't do it by yourself. Any human being can grow, but to grow in the Godlike qualities that are now in your nature, the Holy Spirit has to cause those things to grow. But you do what you can do while confessing your faith that he is doing what only he can do. We need to give God something to work with. As I've said many times, if you'll just give him anything to work with. So I would encourage you as we now are in Lent and heading towards Good Friday and Easter and that this is a time when a billion people in this country are focused more than usual on on Jesus. And you know, so on, I would encourage you to make some decisions to engage now in cultivating the good and Godlike qualities of your life. Maybe you find a tool like the Enneagram uh, in order to learn more about yourself and God. There are many, many tools like that. The Enneagram is not some sacred uh, standalone, the only thing. it's a tool. But find some tools that will help you be able to say, "I'm human. here it is. Help me." Show me grace. Redeem me. Surround yourself with people who know you, love you, are honest with you, believe in you, and will help you grow and change. Could be that getting engaged in a life group is exactly the right thing for you right now where you're actually now sitting with a group of people this week. And you're talking about this in in community with other people who are interested in spiritual growth. That is a powerful, powerful accelerant for spiritual growth. Consider engaging a coach uh, we have recently re-engaged a coach for for our organization and some of our executive leadership here, because of a long-standing personal relationship with him. Sometimes, oftentimes, it bleeds for me over into my personal life. It's amazing how someone from the outside can see things about you, help you in ways if they're committed to your growth that are important. Or find a counselor, which uh, is something that uh, I would like to do. Uh, again, or a spiritual advisor. But the most important work that you can do is to cultivate the life of the spirit. Guys, if you know, let this be the takeaway. Cultivate the life of the spirit. It's when you focus on Jesus and He begins to work in your life that all this other stuff starts to happen. There's this powerful, powerful passage in 2 Corinthians 3 that I don't have time to get into right now that says that when we contemplate him that he transforms us into his image. The most important thing you can do to grow in your life with God is to fully engage your relationship with God. And this is why we practice good spiritual habits. Spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines are means of grace. They're things that God uses to do things in our lives that he couldn't do if we didn't do them. For instance, God could not speak to you through this message today if you hadn't practiced the spiritual discipline to show up this morning, to hear it, right? You don't earn brownie points because you showed up, but what you did is you put yourself in a position for God to work in your life. That's what happens when you get up in the morning and spend time in prayer. God doesn't say, oh, you're a good person now. I really like you better because you prayed this morning. That's No, it's ridiculous. He says, now that you showed up, we can talk. Right. That's why we practice fasting. We fast from something it helps us focus on on God. That's why we 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 practice community like in something like a life group, because God does things there that He couldn't do if we didn't do the work for Him to do His work. And so I encourage you as we begin Lent. You know, most of the time, what people emphasize at Lent is it's all about what somebody's going to give up. Well. On your connection card, I'd like for you to tell me if you're planning on giving something up during Lent, which is fine, but just as much, maybe even more, I'd like for you to tell me if you're going to start something that will stimulate spiritual growth in your life. You understand what I'm saying? I don't care whether you give something up or not. That's between you and God. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to to do that as long as you're doing it so you can focus more on God. Okay. Don't give something up if you just decide you're not eating. What, don't we, what do people not eat on Friday? Meat. I'm not going to eat meat on Friday. Why? If you can't answer the question why, you're wasting your time except maybe your car, car uh, what do you call it? Your cholesterol. Thank you. You were no help at all. I just want you to know. I'm drowning up here. No help at all. Maybe your cholesterol will go down, but it's not going to help you grow in your life with God unless you give the thing up so you can focus on Jesus so Jesus can work in your life. So if you want to give something up for Lent, that's fantastic as long as you do it for the right reason. But I encourage you, start something new for Lent. Maybe you say, I'm not going to miss a Sunday between now and Easter, or I'm going to start a small group this week for the first time in my life for the first time in a long time, or I'm going to get up a half hour early and I'm going to pray, etc., etc., etc. Thank you. Would you please stand with me? I've gone longer than I should.